2: Good evening, welcome to another edition of Little Atoms with me, Neil Denny. Each episode of Little Atoms features a guest from the worlds of science, journalism, politics, academia, human rights, or the arts in conversation. And tonight I'm very pleased to be welcoming back for the third time an old friend of the show, Jonathan Meads. Jonathan is a writer on architecture, culture and food, a novelist and television presenter. He was a restaurant critic of the Times for 15 years. Jonathan's writing includes the short story collection Filthy English, the novels Pompey and the Fowler Family Business, and a collection of food writing, Incest and Morris Dancing. The end of September saw the release by BBC DVD of the Jonathan Mead's collection, a box set which features ten examples of Jonathan's singular televisual essays, and that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. So, Thanks very much for coming back, Jonathan.
1: Thank you for having me, as they say.
2: At one point, it was sort of mooted that the whole of your over might be coming out on a box set and now it's um, it, what's actually come out is, I think it was just a 13 episodes. And I just wonder if there's any particular reason for the, the films you've chosen to be on there.
1: Well, I, th- I think to have released all of my stuff which was getting on for 50 films would have been a huge commercial risk. So uh, there's obviously a possibility that they will be released in the future if this one does okay so everyone should go and buy one the choice was determined by a number of factors I made a wish list of the stuff that I thought ought to go out I looked back over all the stuff I've done and there were certain programs I didn't didn't think were worth putting out which I hadn't worked for one reason or another of the stuff which I was um I mean that was probably of fifty programs, probably about eight I was had worries about of of the rest, I wanted to make it representative of the work that I've done over almost twenty years and so didn't want to concentrate too much on one particular phase of it, and there are definitely phases throughout it once I'd established that list, one then ran into the problem of music clearances, certain programs. Would have been punitively expensive to clear because there was a, hu- a huge amount of music from very diverse sources uh there are one or two programs which uh would have actually cost nothing which still didn't go on there i mean for instance jerry building um about uh Nazi architecture and the the folksiness of of nazism did have specially composed music but to have put that on there would then invite the idea of putting on joe building which was about stalin's architecture and its singular lack of folksiness and it would have looked odd i think to have had one without the other so eventually it's it's a, it's a, uh, like most things in life it's it's a compromise but it's it's a compromise I'm I'm actually quite pleased with I mean there's nothing there I would not um I, which I'm not um, sort of proud of in some way or other
2: the first time you were on the show we talked we talked quite a bit about the influences of, you know, who who would influence you in your in your in your filmmaking and one of the things you talked about was was about comedy and you mentioned particularly marty feldman Back then, it's, when you actually watch a, a sequence of your film, so the, the opportunity is afforded to do that by this by this box set, when you watch them progressing over the career, you can see that a lot, it, you know, it's, it's, it's really obvious. They're funny, They're obvious how funny they are, is, is is what I'm trying to say. So perhaps I'd like to talk a little bit more about this, about, about you know, how comedy has influenced you.
1: Well, <laughs> a lot of comedy leaves me absolutely cold. Uh, I, I often think there's nothing actually so unfunny as comedy, but then there are these wonderful exceptions uh, Marty Feldman being one I also like a lot of Benny Hill's stuff I like Ernie in fact I'd choose Ernie for his Delta design disc had Mr Cameron not chosen it and I don't want to really be seen following in his um, remarkable wake um, uh, yeah I, I like slapstick uh, I like low comedy but what I think Feldman did wonderfully was to combine a very very sharp wit with knockabout which is a very unusual combination and it's something that i guess i've tried to emulate but i mean the 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 moments of sheer beauty in foldman i mean for instance when he's wearing a wig and a dress and um complaining that he um can't get a date and it must be because of my um, my english rose looks <laughs> i just i just fall about when you know stuff like that i mean uh, and more recently I guess Chris Morris although i can 't think that Chris Morris could have had, it, it, my stuff has nothing to do with what he does but I still think he's he 's wonderfully funny uh, i don 't go for his stuff when he 's not not funny um,
2: so let 's talk about then how that you know how you carried that across into the into the filmmaking
1: well I think that one of the besetting problems of films about The environment, or indeed about the arts in general, but especially about architecture, is there. They mistake um, uh, sort of po-faced earnestness for seriousness, and I think you can be funny and serious. I think I, I think I think it's a given, but there is a mentality which maintains that this isn't the case, and I had never been. I wasn't really terribly taken with much architecture and topography on television, with the exception of, of Betjeman, who, who was actually very droll. I mean, he was there's something of a kind of vaudevillian in, in him. And Ian Nairn, who wasn't particularly funny on telly. He was funny in his prose, but I mean, he was so emotionally tied into places uh, that one can forgive him for not not being funny but there had been a whole series of of stuff of of several years of things like architecture at the crossroads and so on which is really like um switching on the television and watching a coffee table book i mean it's really dire stuff and and badly written whereas uh, i mean i having been a writer rather than someone from you know out of out of telly I mean, a lot of the telly stuff is written by people who aren't writers. I mean, they're you know it's written by a producer who happens to be the only person around. I determined to uh, write scripts which were like, um, and they're written like drama scripts. I mean, every shot and so on. And if you're writing like that, you can you can be comedic in one way or another or attempt to be comedic anyway There,
2: there, there is quite an interest, interesting tension though because first of all obviously it's not usual for a, 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 what would be called a, you know, a serious documentary about a serious subject to have sort of humour in it as well but also it's often quite divisive in terms of, you know I've often see people complaining about this if you look at where people have been written to the BBC, they will say this programme was interesting but you know the presenter puts himself forward into the, you know, it's about him rather than about the documentary. And this is interesting because you clearly play with this and you do things like there's in one of the documentaries that's on this box set, there's a really fantastic scene where there's a model village and you walk across a model village and stamp on a couple of the people and then set fire to a um, a that's cottage. And it's quite shocking, you know, it's like... And and, and clearly that's... You're very deliberately taking the putting yourself in the frame thing to an extreme at that at that point. Uh,
1: what else do you do with model villages?
2: <laughs> this is very true indeed. Uh,
1: yeah, I it, it, I would prefer my reaction to be uh, to pl- places and things to be my own reaction rather than that of the kind of person who does late show. Items. I mm-hmm. mean, uh, you know, the kind, of, the kind of kind of guff, um, and also I I think that one has to reach out for an audience which is not a specialist audience, and one can do that by talking down to people, and that that is normally what is done, and treating everyone as if they're a sun reader and so on. Or you can do it by entertaining them in some way which was un. Perhaps unprecedented, and uh, you know, imagination costs nothing. Um, and you, you, you know, you think think up gags, and they're they're all it's all pretty low tech. There, there's
2: sight gags. There's obviously a lot of sight gags. Isn't yeah, a lot,
1: lot, lots there. of sight gags. But why be dull? Why <laughs> be worthy? Um, I, I I don't see any excuse for it. I mean, I, it's rather like you know, the the Cecil Beaton thing about, you know, bad taste is fine, good taste is fine, no taste no is taste, really yeah. boring. <laughs> and I, I just think you don't want to be boring. I mean, you want to, you know, you want to do something that you want to see yourself. And that, I think, is something which critics very, very seldom take into account when they're looking at any form of creative endeavour. The idea that the person who writes the book or paints the painting is actually the first audience of the work. And to an extent, you, you, anyone, especially me, anywhere, I can only speak for myself, um, you write because you want to read it. And I make television shows um, I don't think they're documentaries instantly. I mean, they 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 don't really have any element of documentary in them. But I make shows that I want to see, and the ones which didn't get anywhere near getting on this thing, the ones I don't want to see again.
2: How would you categorise them? I, I I called them televisual essays, which seems a bit of a contrived thing. But how how would how would you
1: shows? Um, you know, it's it's um, lecture theatre and. Um, vaudeville theatre at the same time. I hope.
2: Let's have a have a look at some of the some of the shows a bit more closely then. Some of the ones that are on this box set, and or at least some you know some of the ideas. Let's talk around some of the ideas that are that are, that are raised in the shows. I want to start with Remember the Future, which I'm I'm happy to out myself. But this is my favourite of all of your shows. You talk about. The idea of a point where people's faith in the future and a faith in science and progress and the white heat of technology about how that's sort of gone now. This is like a you know a thing of a certain period of time, the Festival of Britain era, I suppose. Well, the Cold
1: War, obviously, as well. Yeah,
2: I mean the Cold and we'll, 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 we'll sort of come to that in a minute because the, the Cold War features quite heavily, and you know the, the buildings that you look at, obviously, you know, a lot of them are there for that particular reason, but. Why do you think this, the idea of progress went? Why do, you, why do you think people are so suspicious of it now?
1: Well, I think you get, you get to a point where perhaps there is a delusion that one is progressing towards a point, and that point has been reached. So somewhere in the, uh, uh, in the 70s, one began to get a, a, a kind of institutionalised retrospection Uh, people looking back to you could see this in clothes of sort of late hippiedom and so on in the way that modernism lost all confidence in itself the way that the public lost confidence in modern architecture and so on and the fact that we'd got to the moon and there wasn't much you know that that was a, a great achievement and um it seemed to be kind of finite well, you mentioned uh,
2: in the show the idea of you know, the, the the planets as being you know the next place for us to to colonise, sort of thing. You know, there was that was this idea that the moon was
1: the first step. Oh yeah, that we were all going to go on holiday, or, uh, you know, space travel would become a norm. Um, it didn't, and that I suppose the fact that it didn't is uh, uh, another cause of the. Uh, mistrust of progress, because there has been a huge amount of progress. I mean, a mobile phone like is like that. the first first mobile phones were like breeze blocks and about as heavy. Technology may have impinged on our lives in the way that we lead our lives. Obviously, the net has in a huge way, and, and everyone has a computer, but it has not been so visually aggressive as it was during that point. Because what that laptop can do in a few centimeters square used to take something the size of this room and so technology was very very big very apparent it, it altered the landscape and so on now we can have the benefits if that's the right word and I do believe it is of technology without particularly altering the environment in 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 the same in the same way and so there hasn't ne- there has been a uh, there is a mistrust of, of the equation between technological and social progress, but there's, there's no, no lack of fondness uh, for gadgets and what they'll, what, what they'll do for us. And there's, there's, I suppose, a generational thing too, because you know, if, if you grow up with all these things around you and take them for granted, there is not the excitement that mm-hmm. there was in the Years between the end of the Second World War and the first oil crisis—I mean, what the French called les temps glorieuses—that—that uh, that, and that—that that, you know, that's when in France you got the DS and you got high-speed trains, you—you you got um, Formica, which was was very very exciting. <laughs> um, uh, all of that was—it it's, it's, was also it's a its, it's um, y- you can't ever rule out fashion because. People talk of the 60s as some, in some way kind of homogenous. But you look at Corège clothes and then only about a year later, the caftans and all of that stuff. You're into a completely different world and, and you know, girls wearing long sort of pre-Raphaelite dresses and so on. Um, and f- fashion does does play a, p- a part in in all of this, and w- the the fashion for the space age and for technology, which even cosmetically reflected the space age, um, dissipated. You know, sometime around about Sergeant Pepper's, and it, just...
2: it, it could be said that in that you know in the that sort of image of science, of progress, and again you know the white heat of technology, there was. If we can call it, there's a vision of how you know the future was going to be and how society perhaps should be ordered, and and just or just as you said, everybody getting behind the idea of the space race and things. There was, there was something of a vision there, and I think it's interesting to compare this program to one of your much later programs on the Brandwagon, which is basically about another vision for for the future and how we sort of should be ordered. But it's just unbelievably banal in comparison. You know, the the, the idea of of, of the Future being sort of dictated by spin doctors and things in the, in the way it has become. I mean, how do we get there?
1: Well, I mean, I, I think I think the stuff what I was trying to show in on the brand wagon was that regeneration is a kind of um, self-referential <laughs> racket, and that the people who benefit from regeneration are um, people in the building industry, whether it be architects, quantity surveyors, uh, the huge construction companies or people actually on the ground putting putting the things together and that um, building um, I mean you've you've got various things you've got kind of sort of almost like social cleansing in big British cities where people on low incomes are basically pushed out to the peripheries in the way that they are in um, in French or Spanish cities and you've have to question the kind of um uh, the motives again because the, 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 who benefits from it apart from the construction industry as i say the, the building endless sort of synthetic modern or you know, fomo uh flats for people in financial services obviously i mean you've got a balcony you can throw yourself off now, but it's not really going to it's not a, a a catalyst of social improvement the 60s may have got things wrong but at least they believed there was this idea of architectural determinism that by giving people better places to live their lives might be improved and their chances ameliorated um that no one thinks such a thing now partly because of a few housing failures in the 60s i mean i think the housing failures of the 60s have been vastly over-exaggerated and you know you get people of the quality of margaret hodge saying that robin hood gardens has to be pulled down and i don't want to hear any more about daring avant-garde architecture it wasn't actually particularly avant-garde and there's there was, there, there was Nothing wrong with it. I mean, apartment blocks like that work for the rich and they work for the less rich in virtually every other country in the world because they're maintained. I mean, you you don't buy a car and never take it to the garage to have it serviced. And there was a presumption on the part of local councils in Britain that you built a tower block and then just left it to rot. Um, You know, no janitors, nothing. Anyone could walk in to pee in the lift and and anyone did. But the regeneration which one is is seeing now of, of I'm quite how the thinking goes it, it, well one can see how the thinking goes and it's very banal I mean everyone tries to do what Bill Bow has done but what do museums do especially when there's nothing to put in the museums they don't do anything they're just structures kind of architecture of sculpture shoved down usually in some bit of former Dockland Uh it, it, it's crazy. It's a kind of vanity, and it's this kind of corporate or municipal vanity that you know, if Manchester has got the Lowry and the um, Imperial War Museum of the North, which have resulted in a complete, you know, it's wiped out gun crime in Hume and no one's been stabbed, and there are no cracked ends left on Moth's side. Um, If 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 you if you can do that in Manchester, why not have the Royal Armories in Leeds? Which is going to have the same beneficial effects, and so no one from Leeds United fan will ever taunt a black player as a monkey thereafter. I mean, we one can, one can see this it's a huge improvement being in our cities.
2: Well, I want to go back to um, something you mentioned before, which was girls in pre-Raphaelite dresses and caftans for the the next program. Of, of all of the of all of the ones you've chosen for this box set, there's one that particularly stands out to me, and that's in, in Search of Bohemia. And it's the only one that seems to me... There's a fantastic phrase which you use to present the next series on from, from this one ab- ab- abroad again, which is where well, you call it a, a distant present you talk about, which I think is is, is a, a really interesting phrase. In Search of Bohemia really seems to sort of represent that to me. It's, it's like it's the one that's... and. I don't want to say dated, because that's, that's, that's the, not the word I mean, but it's the one that looks most of a particular time. And it seems to me now that, in the weird way, that sort of time sort of telescopes, although this was made in 1990, and you're talking about the the, the, the period of sort of Augustus John and yeah. and that, it almost seems like we're as far from... The people that you you feature in that program now as they were from that period that you that you're sort of talking about it seems like it's a world that's completely and utterly vanished now i mean in that that was the conceit of the program that you're you're searching for something that doesn't really exist anymore now it seems and I was sort of i I was sort of playing a sort of thought experiment with, with with this one myself and thinking if 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 you were going to remake this program or do a sort of follow up to it. You just couldn't, could you? Where would you find that now? You know, where would you find that sort of avant-garde in that sort of bohemian way? That's like totally unfettered by any, you know, any sort of I think that was I I think
1: that sort of bohemian bohemianism does exist still. I really do. It's something, though. I mean, most of that. It, it, (laughs) the genesis of that program was that I wanted I wanted to make a show about Hastings. Where, at that point, uh, a a lot of painters had left London in, I guess, the mid-70s and gone down to Hastings. Partly because you get huge properties with rooms which uh, were ideal as studios and so on. And it was... Almost like a, a a kind of unacknowledged Saint Ives in the way that, you know what Saint Ives had been at the time of Peter Lanyon Hepworth, etc um, in the 1950s and i I knew some of these Hastings painters I um, went and talked to them, and i didn 't feel there was an i thought it would make something rather like a kind of look at life film i, d- I just wasn 't happy with it, but I knew there was an area of Hastings called bohemia and and I knew that quite near Salisbury and Fordingbridge, where Augustus John lived, there was a place called Bohemia. So, you know, the thing kind of coalesced as, as a result of that. Um, I think you'll, you will still find in various spots of Britain people leading that sort of life. You'll never find it in London. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's, it's completely non-metropolitan now. But in um, Stroud in Gloucestershire... In Totnes, in Devon, in various bits of Wales, there are, are people leading that sort of life. I promise you.
2: But do you not think that that, that, that very lifestyle itself has been has becomes, you know, the sort of, a lot of the countercultural stuff becomes just another you know, product to be sold back to? Oh yes, it, yes, company, absolutely, it?
1: It, it is. But nonetheless, it still exists. I mean, it it may exist without the kind of particular rationale that prompted its its fermentation in the, in the, in the first place. But I think it does exist. It, although, of course, I mean, you know, it goes without saying it's an awful... You know, Muriel Spark said in the 1940s in, in, in Girl, Girls of Slender Means, all, 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 which she wrote in 1963, I think, in 1946, all the nice people were poor, which is a very quaint-sounding sentiment today. Um, wasn't so quaint then. But I think looking back at any any past you're obviously looking at at the present I mean one cannot help but do so and so it, it I guess yes it it is um dated in a way and and it is it, it it is rather it's rather kind of cutesier than most of my stuff
2: the next one then that I want to talk about is get high which we really see you suffering for your art in this one because it's um it's about well you introduced the idea of buildings as being intoxicating as as, as you, the idea of psychotropic structures in that you look at tall buildings and buildings that will induce vertigo and you look at the idea of vertigo as a form of sort of intoxication and I presume you do suffer from vertical. Yeah, I suffer very I suffer
1: <laughs> very, very badly from vertigo and have suffered from it since I was 20, when I got stranded on the top of a very high bridge in France um, Pont Aquitaine just outside Bordeaux a friend of mine's car broke down and I sort of we were waiting for the passing car to stop and I just sort of looked over, <laughs> over the side of the bridge and that was it I mean, I'd never suffered vertigo before then um, but I very crassly thought that doing this might cure me of it natural fact it exacerbated it terribly um, but I was interested in, in, in the way in which it's it's almost seems to be built into a lot of structures I mean tall structure doesn't necessarily need to be particularly vertiginous there are all sorts of ways in which you can stop people suffering that sensation but if you have sheer glass walls um, when you're kind of 200 metres up in the sky and the walls come right down to the floor. Um, it, it's you know that 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 is is to me really horrible. But uh, it, it's quite clear that an awful lot of architects simply don't realise the effects that they are achieving, or pretend not to realise.
2: Well, that that's interesting because then there's something like and the new spire tall thing in um, Portsmouth on, on Portsmouth harbour.
1: Well, Spinnaker. Mm. Yeah. It's got
2: like a glass floor at the, at the top as well, which is like some sort of, you know, it's almost like a, uh, a thrill seekers so and stand go and stand on this extremely thick glass looking down at the Yeah, there's a thing, and that's and that's the thing
1: cantilevered out over the Grand Canyon um very very similar the spinnaker i mean i i i wouldn't risk it because the architect got stuck in it on the day that it opened in one of the lifts, which is it's it's um a risky proposition.
2: Well, we're about out of time, so um, it's, it's gone. It's gone extremely quickly. So, thanks very much for, for coming in, speaking to us again, Jonathan. Oh, thank you. And um, again, the, the 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 box set is called uh, the Jonathan Meads Collection, and it's well, it's available on Amazon for I think about twenty six pounds, which is which is which is a bargain, and it's by BBC DVD. Thanks for listening.